section 21 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matthew Williams Section 21 Let us now consider the third danger, that of darkness. The seriousness of this may be inferred from the following description of the journey of the Nassau balloon, published at the time. It seemed to the aeronauts as if they were cleaving their way through an interminable mass of black marble in which they were embedded, and which, solid a few inches before them, seemed to soften as they approached in order to admit them still further within its cold and dusky enclosure. In this way they proceeded blindly, as it may well be called, until about 3.30 a.m., when, in the midst of the impenetrable darkness and profound stillness, an unusual explosion issued from the machine above, followed by a violent rustling of the silk, and all the signs which might be supposed to accompany the bursting of the balloon. The car was violently shaken. A second and a third explosion followed in quick succession. The danger seemed immediate when suddenly the balloon recovered her usual form and stillness. These alarming symptoms seemed to have been produced by collapsing of the balloon under the diminished temperature of the upper regions after sunset, and the silk forming into folds under the netting. Now, when the guide-rope informed the voyagers that the balloon was too near the earth, Ballast was thrown out, and the balloon rising rapidly into a thinner air experienced a diminution of pressure, and consequent expansion of the gas. The cold during the night ranged from a few degrees below to the freezing point. As morning advanced the rushing of waters was heard, and so little were the aeronauts aware of the course which they had been pursuing during the night, that they supposed themselves to have been thrown back upon the shores of the German Ocean, or about to enter the Baltic, whereas they were actually over the Rhine, not far from Koblenz. All this blind drifting for hours, during which the balloon may be carried out to sea, and opportunities of safe descent may be lost, is averted in an arctic balloon voyage, which would be made in the summer, when the sun never sets. There need be no break in the survey of the ground passed over, no difficulty in pricking upon a chart, the course taken, and the present position at any moment. With an horizon of fifty to one hundred miles radius, the approach of such danger as drifting to the open ocean would be perceived in ample time for descent, and, as a glance at the map will show, this danger cannot occur until reaching the latitudes of inhabited regions. 
the arctic aeronauts will have another great advantage over those who ascend from any part of england they can freely avail themselves of mr green's simple but most important practical invention the drag rope this is a long and rather heavy rope trailing on the ground it performs two important functions first it checks the progress of the balloon causing it to move less rapidly than the air in which it is immersed the aeronaut thus gets a slight breeze equivalent to the difference between the velocity of the wind and that of the balloon's progress he may use this as a fulcrum to effect a modicum of steerage the second and still more important use of the drag rope is the very great economy of ballast it achieves suppose the rope to be one thousand feet long its weight equal to one pound for every ten feet and the balloon to have an ascending power of fifty pounds it is evident that under these conditions the balloon will retain a constant elevation of five hundred feet above the ground below it and that five hundred feet of rope will trail upon the ground thus if a mountain is reached no ballast need be thrown away in order to clear the summit as the balloon will always lift its five hundred feet of rope and thus always rise with the upslope and descend with the downslope of the hill and dale the full use of this simple and valuable adjunct to aerial travelling is prevented in such a country as ours by the damage it might do below and the temptation it affords to mischievous idiots near whom it may pass in the course of many conversations with various people on this subject i have been surprised at the number of educated men and women who have anticipated with something like a shudder the terrible cold to which the poor aeronauts will be exposed this popular delusion which pictures the arctic regions as the abode of perpetual freezing is so prevalent and general that some explanation is demanded the special characteristic of arctic climate is a cold and long winter and a short and hot summer the winter is intensely cold simply because the sun never rises and the summer is very hot because the sun is always above the horizon and unless hidden by clouds or mist is continually shining the summer heat of siberia is intense and the vegetable proportionately luxuriant i have walked over a few thousand miles in the sunny south but never was more oppressed with the heat than in walking up the tromsdal to visit an encampment of laplanders in the summer of eighteen fifty six on the seventeenth july i noted the temperature on board the steam packet where we were about three degrees north of the arctic circle it stood at seventy seven degrees well shaded in a saloon under the deck it was ninety two degrees in the roque lugar a little smoking saloon built on deck and one hundred eight degrees in the sun on deck this was out at sea where the heat was less oppressive than on shore 
the summers of arctic norway are very variable on account of the occasional prevalence of misty weather the balloon would be above much of the mist and would probably enjoy a more equable temperature during the twenty-four hours than in any part of the world where the sun sets at night i am aware that the above is not in accordance with the experience of the arctic explorers who have summered in such places as smith's sound i am now about to perpetrate something like a heresy by maintaining that the summer climate there experienced by these explorers is quite exceptional, is not due to the latitude, but to causes that have hitherto escaped the notice of the explorers themselves and of physical geographers generally. The following explanation will probably render my view of this subject intelligible. As already stated, the barrier fringe that has stopped the progress of arctic explorers is a broken mountainous shore down which is pouring a multitude of glaciers into the sea the ice of these glaciers is of course fresh water ice now we know that when ice is mixed with salt water we obtain what is called a freezing mixture a reduction of temperature far below the freezing point due to the absorption of heat by the liquefaction of the ice thus the heat of the continuously shining summer sun at this particular part of the arctic region is continuously absorbed by this powerful action and a severity quite exceptional is thereby produced every observant tourist who has crossed an alpine glacier on a hot summer day has felt the sudden change of climate that he encounters on stepping from terra firma on to the ice and in which he remains immersed as long as he is on the glacier how much greater must be this depression of temperature where the glacier ice is broken up and is floating in sea-water to produce a vast area of freezing mixture which would speedily bring the hottest blasts from the Sahara down to many degrees below the freezing point. A similar cause retards the beginning of summer in Arctic Norway and in Finland and in Siberia. So long as the winter snow remains unmelted, i.e., till about the middle or end of June, the air is kept cold, all the solar heat being expended in the work of thawing this work finished then the warming power of a non-setting sun becomes evident and the continuously accumulating heat of his rays displays its remarkable effect on vegetable life and everything capable of being warmed these peculiarities of arctic climate must become exaggerated as the pole is approached the winter cold still more intense and the accumulation of summer heat still greater in the neighborhood of the north cape where these contrasts astonish english visitors where inland summer traveling becomes intolerable on account of the clouds of mosquitoes the continuous sunshine only lasts from may eleven to august one at the north pole the sun would visibly remain above the horizon during about seven months from the first week in march to the first week in october 
This includes the effect of refraction and the prolonged summer of the northern hemisphere due to the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit. This continuance of sunshine, in spite of the moderate altitude of the solar orb, may produce a very genial summer climate at the pole. I say may, because mere latitude is only one of the elements of climate, especially in high latitudes. Very much depends upon surface configuration and the distribution of land and water. The region in which our Arctic expedition ships have been icebound combines all the most unfavorable conditions of Arctic summer climate. It is extremely improbable that those conditions are maintained all the way to the pole. We know the configuration of Arctic Europe and Arctic Asia, that they are masses of land spreading out northward round the Arctic Circle and narrowing southward to angular terminations. The southward configuration and northward outspreading of North America are the same, but we cannot follow the northern portion to its boundary as we may that of Europe and Asia, both of which terminate in an Arctic Ocean. Greenland is remarkably like Scandinavia. Davis's Strait, Baffin's Bay, and Smith's Sound corresponding with the Baltic and the Gulf of Bothnia. The deep fjords of Greenland, like those of Scandinavia, are on its western side, and the present condition of Greenland corresponds to that of Norway during the milder period of the last glacial epoch. If the analogy is maintained a little further north than our explorers have yet reached, we must come upon a polar sea, just as we came upon the White Sea and the open Arctic Ocean, if we simply travel between 400 and 500 miles due north from the head of the frozen Gulf of Bothnia. Such a sea, if unencumbered with land ice, will supply the most favorable conditions for a genial Arctic summer, especially if it be dotted with islands of moderate elevation, which the analogies of the known surroundings render so very probable. Such islands may be inhabited by people who cannot reach us on account of the barrier wall that has hitherto prevented us from discovering them. Some have even supposed that a Norwegian colony is there imprisoned. Certainly the early colonists of Greenland have disappeared, and their disappearance remains unexplained. They may have wandered northwards, mingled with the Eskimo, and have left descendants in this unknown world. If any of Franklin's crew crawled far enough, they may still be with them, unable to return. In reference to these possibilities, it should be noted that a barrier fringe of mountainous land, like that of Greenland and Arctic America, would act as a condensing ground upon the warm air flowing from the south, and would there accumulate the heavy snows and consequent glaciers, just as our western hills take so much of the rain from the vapor-laden winds of the Atlantic. The snowfall immediately round the pole would thus be moderated, and the summer begin so much earlier. I have already referred to the physical resemblances of Baffin's Bay, Smith's Sound, etc., to the Baltic, the Gulf of Bothnia, and Gulf of Finland. 
These are frozen every winter, but the Arctic Ocean, due north of them, is open all the winter and every winter. The hardy Norse fishermen are gathering their chief harvest of codfish in the open sea around and beyond the North Cape, Nordkin, etc., at the very time when the Russian fleet is hopelessly frozen up in the Gulf of Finland. But how far due north of this frozen Baltic are these open sea fishing banks? More than 14 degrees more than double the distance that lies between the winter quarters of some of our ships in Smith Sound and the Pole itself. This proves how greatly physical configuration and oceanic communication may oppose the climatic influences of mere latitude. If the analogy between Baffin's Bay and the Baltic is complete, a polar sea will be found that is open in the summer at least. On the other hand, it may be that ranges of mountains covered with perpetual snow and valleys piled up with huge glacial accumulations extend all the way to the pole, and thus give to our globe an arctic ice cap like that is displayed on the planet Mars. This, however, is very improbable, for if it were the case, we ought to find a circumpolar ice wall like that of the Antarctic regions. The Arctic Ocean beyond the North Cape should be crowded with icebergs, instead of being open and iceless all the year round. With such a configuration, the ice wall should reach Spitsbergen and stretch across to Nova Zembla. But instead of this, we have there such an open stretch of Arctic water, that in the summer of 1876, Captain Kjeldsen of Tromso sailed in a whaler to latitude 81 degrees 30 minutes without sighting ice. He was then but 510 geographical miles from the pole, with open sea right away to his north horizon, and nobody can say how much farther. These problems may all be solved by the proposed expedition. The men are ready and willing. One volunteer has even promised one thousand pounds, on condition that he shall be allowed to have a seat in one of the balloons. All that is wanted are the necessary funds, and the amount required is but a small fraction of what is annually expended at our racecourses upon villainous concoctions of carbonic acid and methylated cider bearing the name of champagne. Arrangements are being made to start next May, but in the meantime many preliminary experiments are required. One of these, concerning which I have been boring Commander Chain and the committee, is a thorough and practical trial of the staying properties of hydrogen gas when confined in given silken or other fabrics saturated with given varnishes. We are still ignorant on this fundamental point. We know something about coal gas, but little or nothing of the hydrogen, such as may be used in the foregoing expedition. Its exmosis, as proven by Graham, depends upon its adhesion to the surface of the substance confining it. 
Every gas has its own specialty in this respect, and a membrane that confines a hydrocarbon, like coal gas, may be very unsuitable for pure hydrogen, or vice versa. Hydrogen passes through hard steel, carbonic oxide through red-hot iron plates, and so on with other gases. They are guilty of most improbable proceedings in the matter of penetrating apparently impenetrable substances. The safety of the aeronauts and the success of the aerial exploration primarily depends upon the length of time that the balloons can be kept afloat in the air. A sort of humanitarian cry has been raised against this expedition on the ground that unnaturally good people, of whom we now meet so many, should not be guilty of aiding and abetting a scheme that may cause the sacrifice of human life. These kind friends may be assured that, in spite of their scruples, the attempt will be made by men who share none of their fears, unless the preliminary experiments prove that a balloon cannot be kept up long enough. Therefore, the best way to save their lives is to subscribe at once for the preliminary expense of making these trials, which will either discover means of traveling safely or demonstrate the impossibility of such ballooning altogether. Such experiments will have considerable scientific value in themselves and may solve other problems besides those of Arctic exploration. Why not apply balloons to African exploration or the crossing of Australia? The only reply to this is that we know too little of the practical possibilities of such a method of traveling when thus applied. Hitherto, the balloon has only been a sensational toy. We know well enough that it cannot be steered in a predetermined line, i.e., from one point to another point, but this is quite a different problem from sailing over a given surface of considerable area. This can be done to a certain extent, but we want to know definitely to what extent and what are the limits of reliability and safety. With this knowledge, and its application by the brave and skillful men who are so eager to start, the solution of the polar mystery assumes a new and far more hopeful phase than it has ever before presented. THE ANGLO-AMERICAN ARCTIC EXPEDITION Commander Chain has gone to America to seek the modest equipment that his own countrymen are unable to supply. He proposes now that his expedition shall be Anglo-American. I have been asked to join an Arctic Council to cooperate on this side and have refused on anti-patriotic grounds. As a member of the former Arctic Committee, I was so much disgusted with the parsimony of our millionaires and the anti-geographical conduct of the Seville Row Mutual Admiration Society that I heartily wish that in this matter our American grandchildren may lick the Britishers quite complete. 
it will do us much good. My views expressed in the Gentleman's Magazine of July 1880 and repeated above remain unchanged, except in the direction of confirmation and development. I still believe that an enthusiastic, practically trained, sturdy Arctic veteran who has endured hardship both at home and abroad, whose craving eagerness to reach the pole amounts to a positive monomania, who lives for this object alone and is ready to die for it, who will work at it purely for the work's sake, will be the right man in the right place when at the head of a modestly but efficiently equipped polar expedition, especially if Lieutenant Schwatka is his second in command. They will not require luxurious saloons, nor many cases of champagne. They will care but little for amateur theatricals. They will follow the naval traditions of the old British sea-dogs rather than those of our modern naval lap-dogs, and will not turn back after a first struggle with the cruel Arctic ice, even though they should suppose it to be paleochristic. Mr. Walter Powell Scientific Aero Station has lost its most promising expert, by the untimely death of Walter Powell. He was not a mere sensational ballooner, nor one of those dreamers who imagine they can invent flying machines or steer balloons against the wind by mysterious electrical devices or by mechanical paddles, fan wheels, or rudders. He perfectly understood that a balloon is at the mercy of atmospheric currents and must drift with them. But nevertheless, he regarded it as a most promising instrument for geographical research. I had a long conference with him on the subject in August last, when he told me that the main objects of the ascents he had already made and should be making for some little time forward were the acquisition of practical skill and of further knowledge of atmospheric currents, after which he should make a dash at the Atlantic with the intent of crossing to America. On my part, I repeated with further argument what I have already urged on page 113 of the Gentleman's Magazine for July 1880, namely, the primary necessity of systematic experimental investigation of the rate of exosmosis oozing out of the gas from balloons made of different materials and variously varnished. Professor Graham demonstrated that this molecular permeation of gases and liquids through membranes mechanically airtight depends upon the adhesion affinities of particular solids for other particular fluids, and these affinities vary immensely their variations depending on chemical differences rather than upon mechanical impermeability. My project to attach captive balloons of small size 
to the roof of the Polytechnic Institution, holding them by a steel yard that should indicate the pull due to their ascending power and the rate of its decline according to the composition of the membrane, was heartily approved by Mr. Powell, and, had the Polytechnic survived, would have been carried out, as it would have served the double purpose of scientific investigation and of sensational advertisement for the outside public. If the aeronaut were quite clear on this point, could calculate accurately how long his balloon would float, he might venture with deliberate calculation on journeys that without such knowledge are mere exploits of blind daring. The varnishes at present used are all permeable by hydrogen gas and hydrocarbon coal gas, as might be expected a priori from the fact that they are themselves solid hydrocarbons, soluble in other liquid or gaseous hydrocarbons. Nothing, as far as I can learn, has yet been done with silicic or boracic varnishes, which are theoretically impermeable by hydrogen and its carbon compounds. But whether they are practically so under ballooning conditions and can be made sufficiently pliable and continuous are questions only to be solved by practical experiments of the kind above named. Now that the best man for making these experiments is gone, somebody else should undertake them. Unfortunately, they must of necessity be rather expensive. End of section 21